real briefly, you know, Matthew uh, is making this audacious claim, right? He's making this audacious claim that Jesus is the climax of not only the story of Israel, but of the story of humanity. And he's making this claim that Jesus really is the mark of a new Genesis, as we've said. It's this new moment in history, this recreation. And that means that Jesus' story, the story of Jesus, encompasses all other stories, is what Matthew is saying. And if that's true, what that means is all of our stories, your story and my story, are, are intimately connected to and ultimately directed to Jesus. Which is why uh, we've said the more that we learn about this Jesus, as more that we dive into this story and encounter this person, not only do we learn about him, but we learn about ourselves. We learn to understand who we truly are and the purpose, the call on our lives as human beings. And so that's why Matthew, in, in his account, he is constantly introducing new people into the story. People whose stories are connecting and being woven into this story, this account of the life of Jesus. And so this morning we encounter another one of those people. We encounter this man named John the Baptist. Now it's interesting because John the Baptist in Matthew, he just burst into the story. There's no lead up. There's no kind of introduction here. Uh, in Luke's account, for example, you get this whole kind of origin story uh, like we've talked about for Jesus. You get an origin story for John. Uh, you learn all these things about how his birth has this miraculous aspect to it. You learn that he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. You learn that he's Jesus' cousin and that they have, even beyond a familial connection, this, this, this deep spiritual connection of some kind. You learn all these things about John, but in Matthew he just appears uh, out of nowhere. And so you get this picture of this strange man in animal skins and uh, who lives out in the middle of nowhere all by himself in the wilderness. And he eats bugs uh, and he's calling people uh, to repentance. And so it just, he just appears in the story of Matthew. And so the question that we're left asking is, who is this man that we know nothing about? Who is this man who just appears in the story of Jesus? Uh, when John is faced with this question... Uh, when this question comes up in the Gospel of Matthew, it's abundantly clear, and it's echoed here in Matthew. He is a voice. I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. That's who he is. Now, he's actually quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, this prophet from uh, the age of the exile. That He's quoting uh, uh, Isaiah because he wants us, again, to, to look back to understand the context in which he's appeared on the scene. We talked about this uh, last week, the story, the overarching story, not only of, of Israel, but all of humanity. Y'all remember that? We, we kind of traced that out and talked about the fact that Israel, at this point, as the Old Testament ends, where are they? They're in exile, right? They're in exile. They're longing for the Savior to come. And so what's happened up until this moment, 400 years leading up to John the Baptist, there's been no prophet. There's been no one who's come forth and spoken on behalf of the Lord. And so that's why in Matthew 3.1 it says, in those days. That's what, that's what that means. It means in those days. Those days when Israel had not heard from God. In those days when Israel was asking, when will God speak again? When will he send the Messiah, the Savior, to rescue us from exile and oppression? In those days. In other words, they are hungry. They are longing for and craving the word of the Lord to come. A voice it says, in those days, a voice came.
crying out in the wilderness. And it was a powerful voice. It was a spirit-filled voice. John was uh, anointed. Jesus says that he was the greatest man born of a woman to ever live. That's high praise from Jesus. The greatest human being to ever live. He was anointed for this purpose as a prophet. And so what you see is people are being drawn to him in the wilderness. So much so that, in fact, people often wondered, is John the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been longing to see? And I wish we had more time to, to kind of dive deep into John himself. Um, but what's most amazing about John wasn't uh, his strangeness or his boldness uh, or his courage. It was his message. The most incredible thing about John is his message. He was a voice and he declared a message that if we're honest, as we listen to the words that I just read a few minutes ago, it makes us uneasy and perhaps even feels a bit confusing. His message is hard for us, particularly because if we hold this up next to the Gospel of Luke, we're told that John came preaching good news, preaching good news. So here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow morning, I want you to go to your favorite coffee shop, and I want you to walk in and say, hey, everybody, I got some good news. And I want you to start just like this. You brood of vipers. And see how it goes. Right? That doesn't sound like good news. How is that good news? You brood of vipers. Unquenchable fire. These are the things that are worked into his message. That doesn't sound like good news. And yet that's exactly what Luke calls it. And it's good news, as we're going to see, because... Uh, you know, it might beg the question, what does that have to do with Jesus, right? What does is, what is all this have to do with Jesus? And it has everything to do with Jesus. That's why it is good news, and we're going to come to that. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to, to consider the message of John the Baptist that comes at this moment in the story of Jesus. The message of John the Baptist and how it is good news for you and for me. So first, the message of John the Baptist is a message of repentance, it's a message of repentance. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John cries out, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, when we read the word repent, that word carries all kinds of mixed and probably negative impressions for many of us. Repent we don't think of in a positive light. But I want to explore this word a little bit. So in, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word repent, actually it, it, what it means is to, to turn in a totally new direction. It's a total adjustment, not just kind of, oh, I, I'm going to change my mind, but it's a, a whole adjustment to the direction of your life is the sense of the word. And so it means that I was going this way, I'm moving this way in my life, and to repent would be to turn away from my way and to turn and go the way of God, to move in uh, line with who God is and what he's like. That's what repent means. It means to move in a new direction. I've turned. And so when John calls Israel to repentance, he's calling them to turn around. They've been going one way. He says, turn around. Now, the question is, why? why what, what's been the problem? Why are they going the wrong way? What do they need to turn around from? Now, remember... Again, to think back to last week, remember the people of Israel, they were called to bear witness to God in the world. Like we just heard about, heard in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. They are called to be a blessing 
Because they have been blessed. They've been called to be a blessing. They are called to be faithful to God and bear witness to God in the world. But they have not lived into that promise. They have not lived into that calling. And the reasons that they haven't heard from God for 400 some odd years, the reasons they're in exile is because they have been going in the wrong direction, is what John is saying. They've been moving in the wrong direction, away from God. And so he says, repent, turn around. The exile is ending, right? This is the moment the Messiah is coming. So turn and be prepared because the kingdom is near. So that is John's message. And so what he's, what he's painting a picture of is, is actually something really beautiful. This call to repentance is a beautiful gift. It's not a word of shame. It's not a word of condemnation, but it's a word that invites us to turn, to turn towards God. And that's a beautiful thing. And so, like Israel, we're invited to turn. Because the reality is that we too are prone to wander, to wander away from God, to go our own way. And it's easy to do. In fact, Jesus, in his own words later in Matthew, he'll say this. He said, wide is the gate. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. See, Jesus says the way of God is narrow. That it's difficult. Why? Because God calls us to give up our way, our autonomy, our self-rule, to recognize that we have been going the wrong way, that we've been living in rebellion to God in the process. And the truth is that sometimes this feels good to do this because we feel like we have control and we get to do what we want. But ultimately, what does Jesus say? He says that is the path to destruction. And so he calls us to change direction. He says that is the path to destruction, and I want to call you into another way, into the way of the Lord. So to repent is to lay aside my way. It's to lay aside my will. It's to say, not my will, not my kingdom, but yours, Lord. Jesus says that he ultimately is the way to God. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so to repent is to say, yes, I will, I will live in your way, Jesus. I will live under your authority, and I will let you decide what's right and wrong in my life. I'll let you decide who I am and the purpose and the course of my life. And this way of life, it not only blesses us, but just like Abram, it blesses those around us. When we live into this way of life, when we live into his kingdom, we become witnesses. And all that is ours in Jesus spills out of us and it bears witness to a world that desperately needs to turn, to repent. And so repentance is this beautiful, beautiful practice of turning our lives over to God again and again and again. And I don't know if that's been your concept of repentance, but, but I hope that frees you maybe from some of the, the, the ways you've thought about it before, that maybe that weren't un unhelpful. Maybe this frees you to, to step into repentance as an everyday, every moment kind of thing where you're actually turning towards God. Because we need to cultivate this practice of repentance. Because the truth is we forget. We are prone. We quickly take up the lordship of our own lives. We need to repent and turn back to God. So first, it's a message of repentance. Second, 
John's message is a message of confession. Look in verse 5. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now to confess, one way to think about confessing is uh, it's to bring yourself into alignment with God. Uh, another way you might think about it is confession is uh, saying what is true. So it's just saying what is capital T, true. Uh, so confession is this essential aspect of our lives as followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. So confession is an essential part of our life as followers of Jesus. You know, I love that every Sunday we, we gather here and confession, corporate confession, is a part of our weekly rhythm. Every week we stand together and we confess that we need the Lord. We speak the truth together in this place. And it's this act of humility. It's an act that says, I need help. It's, a, it's an act where we actually stand before the Lord and we're real before him. We're transparent. We say, Lord, we confess our need for you. And so we want to be a people marked by confession. At Apostles, we want to be a community marked by confession. A people that are real with each other honest with each other, and honest with God. Because the truth is, when we, when we don't practice that, if, if we don't take up this practice of confession together, um, what happens is we begin to make all kinds of excuses for our sinfulness. What happens is we end up focused on ourselves. We, we withdraw in, we hide our brokenness from each other. And what happens is it robs the church of its witness. If we're not a people of confession, instead of bearing witness to the power, right, of the gospel, the power uh, to bring forgiveness in our lives and to transform us from within, if we're not willing to, to go through this process of confession, what, what happens is we become people who aren't honest with one another or with the Lord. We're, we're people who hide. We're pretenders. We're liars. We become hypocrites. So there's great power in Confession. You know, sin, what it, what it does is it seeks to control us, right? It seeks to, to enslave us, to shame us, and to isolate us. But confession, confession is truth-telling. It's truth-telling that brings God's forgiveness into our lives and his freedom into our lives. And so John is, is proclaiming this message of repentance and this, this message of confession. And he's also proclaiming this message of judgment. A message of judgment. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And John's words are harsh. They are harsh for these Pharisees and Sadducees, for the leaders of the day. What's interesting, though, is if you look in the Gospel of Mark, they're not reserved just for the leaders uh, of the church. 
or uh, of, of the Jewish faith. They're not just for the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're actually for the whole crowd who's gathered there. He speaks these words of judgment for everyone. Because again, Israel had taken the law of God instead of letting it produce in them what was necessary for repentance and confession and this desire for God, it had produced pride. That we're, we're God's chosen people. We're special. We're set apart. And instead of leading to the, the fruit of repentance, as John says, it leads them to arrogance and selfishness. Israel had lost sight of God's greater purpose to draw the nations to himself, to save humanity. And so God, or John speaks this word, of judgment to them. And so the question then is, well, how can this message of judgment actually be good news? How can a message that condemns people, this judgment, word of judgment, be actually good news for people like us? You know, judgment is something we have become very anxious about in the church. We don't know what to do with it. We dread this whole topic I think, of God's judgment or of his wrath. You know, one of the biggest fears I think we have just uh, in the course of our lives is that someone would perceive us or accuse us of being what? Judgmental. No, no, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not the judgmental kind of Christian. We don't want anything to do with this word. And people get really upset when we talk about things like God's wrath or God's justice. But what I want to say is judgment is not a dirty word. It's not something we're better off without in the church. The truth is we all actually want judgment. We want justice. We want God's judgment here on the earth. We want someone to answer for the terrible things that people do in this world. We want people to answer for children who are abused. We want people to answer for the lives destroyed by, by violence and racism and selfishness and all that. We want justice. We want justice. God judged that. We say that. But we also say God judge those people. God judge those people because we don't want God to judge us. Have you ever noticed where the line between us and the bad people, it's always out in front of you? They're always over there and you're always kind of over here, right? That's how we do it. We draw that line of judgment and we make sure that we draw it in a place so that we are actually, well, you know, those are the worst sins, right? Those, on that side's all the bad, bad, bad stuff. You know, that's where, that's where the pedophiles and the rapists and the murderers, that's where they are, and they deserve judgment. And I'm on this side, because I haven't done any of that. I haven't done any of those kinds of things. I mean, okay, so I've lied some, and, you know, I've, maybe I've been unkind here and there. But I, I'm, I'm a good person. And so we draw that line and we say, you know, my sin's really not so, such a big deal in the scheme of things. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to think about this. Let's imagine uh, up here, the breadth of this is a scale. Uh, it's a scale and on this side is, uh, is, is Jesus, right? So Jesus, like perfect, good, all that is beautiful. That's Jesus. Owns. And on this side... As you slide all the way down is like the worst person that we could possibly imagine. Worst human to ever possibly live. Let's just say Hitler because he's an easy target, right? So Hitler is down here. Jesus is over here, okay? 
So here's what I want us to consider. All right, if you are looking this way on this scale, all right, compared to Hitler, how do we fare? All right, so raise your hand if you started a world war this week. No? Okay, you're good. All right, no genocide, right? But there, there's a whole list of things. He did terrible, terrible things. And we can look at something like that and we can say, okay, well, compared to that, you know, I'm not so bad. You know, I, I come to church. You know, I, I, I try to be kind and, and generous with people. On the way in today, I even stopped and picked up some trash in the parking lot. You know, I'm a good person. I'm nothing like Hitler. And compared to Hitler, you know what? You guys are awesome. You're amazing, right? So if you're looking that way, that's what happens. What happens if you turn this direction? What if we look to Jesus as the perfect, as the good, as the most beautiful human being that's ever lived? The Jesus who was good and loving, who was generous. The the Jesus who is off the charts compassionate. The Jesus who is everything we ever wished we could possibly experience in our humanity. Perfection. You know what happens when you do that? You start moving this way really quick. And before you know it, you are right next to Hitler. You see, the reality is that when we talk about something like sin, what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us, you know, it's not a measure of how bad you are or I am, right? It's a measure of how good you are not. In other words, it's not about comparing ourselves to one another. That's not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And Paul says it this way. He says, we all fall short. We've all fallen short of the, of the beauty and the goodness All that is perfect in Jesus, we've all fallen. He is, he's what we were made to be in this humanity, and we fall short. The standard is Jesus, and we all fall short. And what that means is we all deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. A perfect and just God, for him to be loving, he must, he must pour out judgment on what is evil. He must call evil, evil, and treat it as such. What is wrong in the world and what is wrong in us. I love how a pastor named Josh White said it. He said, the wrath of God is not him turning his love off and turning his wrath on. The wrath of God is his love in friction with evil. It is his love offended by sin. And so his love burns fiercely against all that is not true, that is not good, that is not loving. See, we deserve judgment. All of us have fallen short. All of us deserve judgment. So again, how then is this message of judgment good news? And it's because not only is it a message of repentance and of confession and of judgment, but it's a message of hope. 
It's good news because it is inseparable from a message of hope. John's message doesn't end with judgment. It offers hope for those who rightly deserve judgment for you and for me. And that hope comes in the person of Jesus. That hope comes in the person of Jesus. John's message of judgment, his call to repentance, is a message of love because he cares. Right? He cares so deeply about the destiny of Israel and ultimately of humanity that he longs for them to turn from the path of destruction. Turn away from the path of destruction and turn towards the path of God, to life with God. Because he understands that sin kills He understands that humanity needs to be rescued. And so he calls out this message of repentance. And he says, repent, repent and turn and come because you need to be rescued. You need Jesus. He is your hope. And so Jesus appears on the banks of the Jordan. Matthew 3.13, it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by John. To receive John's baptism of repentance is why Jesus comes. Which should make no sense considering what we just said about Jesus. Why does Jesus need a baptism of repentance? He's the most perfect human being that's ever lived. He's never done anything that he needs to repent of. So why is he coming to receive a baptism of repentance. It says this. It says that John didn't understand it either. It says that John was confused. He said, Jesus, I, I don't know why you want me to baptize. You should baptize me. That's how this should work. And Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up. From the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and came to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What's happening here with Jesus in this moment? I think 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps us understand. Paul writes, For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, in Jesus, God is fully identifying with our humanity including our brokenness and our failure and our sin. Jesus enters into that. Jesus, who never sinned, who lived a total life of obedience, who was in perfect harmony with the will of God, he was willing to take on our humanity and our sin and so identify with us that he could take on himself the judgment that we deserved and he would take it away. He could remove it from us. That's why God is so pleased with Jesus in this moment. He's so pleased because here at Jesus' baptism, he is taking up what every king before him has failed to do, what every Israelite has failed to do, what every human being has failed to do. Jesus is taking it up. Here he is taking on the task of doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. He's taking up the life 
of perfect love for and obedience to God the Father. And God is pleased. See, the gospel, it's inviting us. It's inviting us to believe in this Jesus. To to believe in this Jesus, the Savior who can rescue us from the path of self-destruction. Can rescue us from the judgment that we justly deserve. The one who loved you and me enough to take that on himself on the cross. That's, That's this Jesus. And so this is where Matthew is bringing us to, in this story, he's bringing us to this moment, I think. As we encounter this story about John and his message and Jesus' baptism, he's bringing us to this place where we have to get real. Real quick, we have to get real about who we are. There's no room for pretense. We can fool each other. But we can't fool God. God knows exactly who we are. And so we're brought to the end of ourselves. We're brought to that place where we realize we can never fix what's deeply wrong with us. All the things that we try to hide, all the things that we don't want to say out loud, all the things that even the people in this room, we're scared to death if they really knew what was going on. God sees all of that. And what's his response? He declares judgment over the things in your life that deserve judgment, the things that are killing you. And then he declares hope, hope over you. He speaks a better word in the person of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, it is a word of forgiveness and a word of mercy and a word of love. It's a message of hope. So what we're left with here is is a realization that the person we've encountered in Jesus, he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin and my sin. He is the only one that can save us. Let's pray. Father, you are so loving and Lord it sounds strange to say but your judgment is an act of love towards us Lord because you speak truth to us over the things that are destroying us and destroying others and destroying the world and so Lord I I pray that we would receive your judgment Lord that we would receive it and our response would be repentance to turn away, Lord, and to turn to Jesus, Lord, that we would take up this way of life of confessing our desperate need for you, Lord, that we need you, we desperately need you to save us, to restore us, to heal us in those places that, Lord, we're even, we're just afraid to even admit are there. So we thank you that you are a God who offers us hope in the person of Jesus. You are the only one that can save us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to lead us as a people into this way of repentance, into this life of Jesus. 
Lord, that we would not only experience your blessing, but that we would be a blessing to a world that desperately needs to know that you love them. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. You know, every week um, we say the creed. Uh, we spend some time in prayer, and we uh, corporately confess. And what we've talked about this morning in terms of being a people marked by repentance and confession, it, it, we're working that out together every Sunday. Um, and so I just invite you, maybe in a fresh way, in a way you've never done this before, just really enter into this. As we say this creed, it's affirming this is who God is and his, his, his character, his love for us and what he's done to demonstrate that. And then we can respond because he's our heavenly father. He invites us to come and bring to him who we are with no pretense. And then we, we follow that with confession where we just admit, Lord, we need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your healing. So let's just walk through that together. Let's say these words. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I just encourage you to... Close your eyes and bow your head. We're just going to take a few moments to pray. And uh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you just would continue to meet us. Lord, we thank you for your presence. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would again remind us that, Lord, because of what your son has done, Lord, because of what's been accomplished on the cross, that we can come to you as we are without fear, without reservation, Lord, we can be real. And so even if it's just in the quiet of, of your own hearts, or maybe the Lord's leading you to pray aloud, I just want us to take these moments and just be real with the Lord. Lord, would you free us just to come to you as we are. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give what we need.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people marked by repentance and confession. Lord, that it's your kindness demonstrated in the person of Jesus on the cross that that takes us there. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us in that place, that we would know what it means to receive your forgiveness and know the power of what it means to be restored. Lord, that we would know your tender compassion in that place, that you would heal us, all of us, in the depths of who we are. Lord, give us courage. Give us the courage to take those first steps in response to your love for us, that we would would turn to you and we would confess. Lord, because we want your spirit to be free to work in our lives and in this church. And so would you form and shape us as followers of Jesus to be those kinds of people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep us in eternal life. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Let's greet one another in the peace of Christ.